All right. If everyone can start making their way back to their seats. As you do, if you do not have a Bible on your phone or one with you, you will need one this morning. You will need a Bible. So there are, some, there are quite a few Bibles back there, and you will need it in the English Standard Version translation specifically for this morning. Uh, you'll find out why the translation matters this morning um, in just a minute. So Dan texted me yesterday evening, and he was saying... Uh, he, he didn't feel real good, wasn't sure if he was going to make it today or not, um, so just kind of be on standby, but he let me know this morning, and then he let me know at 7.45 this morning that I was indeed preaching. So it was a quick um, look in the archives of what I had, and um, there was a, a message, it's actually the first sermon I preached back at, at this church, and it was in August of 2019. Um, and since the great COVID reshuffling, most of y'all weren't here then. Uh, there's probably about three families that were back then, um, and I doubt y'all uh, remember all of the points of that, so I think we're okay on that. But this is a passage, we're going to look at Psalm 136, if you want to start turning to that. Um, but I chose this passage because of the central concept of God's steadfast love. Um, it's been something that's been very, very meaningful to me in my life and in some of the things that I've gone through, the things that have actually led me to this church. And also, um, it's in many of the, the Psalms that we read, Psalm 85, we just read about steadfast love. Um, it also is intricately related to the book of Judges and God's love for his covenant people and why he doesn't just throw them off even though they, they sin against him time and time again. And so one of the things we know from Jewish rabbinic tradition is this particular chapter, Psalm 136, is part of the Hillel Psalms. And this one was assigned to be read and to be sung on the eve of Passover. So during the Feast of Tabernacles, for which the Passover was a part of that, this song was sung on each of the eight days of that festival, uh, right next to the temple where lambs were being slain for the Passover. So this psalm is very intricately connected to God's redemptive story uh, throughout the Bible. And it has been said that the repetition and response of this psalm allows the gathered worshipers to reflect and to ponder on each of the descriptive phrases within this psalm. Now, responsive readings can feel very strange in today's age because um, the modern church has largely thrown that off. Uh, I was, remember being at another church and uh, my friend, the worship pastor, put in a responsive reading of about three verses. And at the staff meeting, we had multiple comment cards that said, responsive readings seem too Catholic. And so some of the people were like, um, okay, yeah, we shouldn't do that again. And my response was like, well, if responsive reading of scriptures is too Catholic, maybe we should be more like the Catholics. Um, that didn't go over too well. But um, we are going to turn back the clock a bit, and we are going to do this as a responsive reading, as it would have been done back then. So that's why you need a Bible, and specifically the English Standard Version um, this morning, because you are going to read uh, as a congregation the phrase, for his steadfast love endures forever. And it will seem a bit repetitive. It will seem like it's growing a bit repetitive. But there is a purpose to that because the repetitive nature of this psalm is the entire point of this psalm. It is meant to have repetition. So I'll read the first part of the line and then you guys will answer with, for his steadfast love endures forever. So hear now the reading of God's word. We'll start in Psalm 136, verse one. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. For his steadfast love endures forever. 
to him alone who does great wonders. To him who by understanding made the heavens. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. The moon and stars to rule over the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. And brought Israel out from among them. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two. And made Israel pass through the midst of it. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who struck down great kings. And killed mighty kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites. And Og, king of Bashan. And gave their land as a heritage. A heritage to Israel, his servant. It is he who remembered us in our low estate. And rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your steadfast love does endure forever. I pray that you would help us as we take a brief look at this this morning, that this would become a concept that is something that is deeply ingrained in us. I pray that you'd help me. I feel woefully and adequately prepared uh, this morning, but I pray that your spirit would speak through your word and not through me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So one of the mantras you'll hear in education, and I spent a little bit of time in, in education, is that repetition is the key to learning. And I would argue that that's only partly true, but I would under, argue that understanding is the true key to learning. Because you can do something over and over and over again, you know, practice makes perfect, but you do it wrong, you do it, if you do things wrong over and over again, you're just gonna keep doing things wrong over and over again. Uh, like, for instance, one of the things I enjoy do, doing is, is playing tennis. I can hit shot after shot after shot and hit bad shot after bad shot after bad shot. But if you understand the concepts of tennis about how to move your feet, you know, how to topspin a ball, those type of things, and you practice those things and do those things repetitively understanding that, then you truly learn and understand how to do those things. And I think it's similar with applying scripture and the attributes of God. We can be in scripture all day long. We can talk about the attributes of God all day long. But if we don't start with a foundation and an understanding to build upon and to understand God, it's like hitting that bad shot over and over and wondering why it's sailing beyond the baseline or into the net every single time. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's a song we all know. It's a phrase we all know. And I think it's a great thing to teach our young children that Jesus loves them and that the Bible tells them that Jesus loves them. But I'm afraid that so many Christians are still stuck at that same point at that same phrase, that child phrase. We say we know that God loves us, 
but we don't understand truly the depth and intensity of God's love for us. So this psalm's repetition of his steadfast love endures forever helps us to learn and it reminds us of God's love, but also with each verse, it gives us an understanding of God's love because of the phrase that comes before it. So repetition with understanding, both working together to create an indelible memory of God's steadfast love. And my central argument of, of, of this this morning is that we don't receive God's love fully because we don't fully understand God's love. We don't receive God's love fully because we don't fully understand God's love. Now, you'll hear sermons on, on uh, different words for love in the Bible, mostly from the New Testament. So there'll be phileo and agape, and people will preach sermons about those different things. But I want to emphasize one in the Old Testament, and it's one of the words that has really shaped my life over about the last seven years. It may be new for some of you, some of you may know this, but it's the word hesed. Uh, transliterated into English, it's H-E-S-E-D. Hesed, H-E-S-E-D. And in your Bible, especially the English Standard Version, that's translated as steadfast love just about every time. And there's really no comparable word for that in any other language. I had a professor, uh, one of my Hebrew professors, who helped translate the Psalms for the New King James Version, he made a statement that, that stuck with me. He said that his said, behind the covenant name of God, Yahweh, is the second most important word in all of the Bible. His said is the most important word in all of the Old Testament behind the covenant name of God. Now, some Jewish scholars define his said as a free-flowing love that knows no bounds. It's also been defined as an enduring, eternal covenant love. It's in, intimately connected to the covenant that God was made with Israel. Now, if you think way back, it was a unilateral covenant that God made, meaning that God initiated the relationship with Abraham and thus with Israel. And even though Israel violated the terms of that covenant over and over and over again, God's has said, or God's steadfast love for them never ceased. It's why in Jeremiah 31, three, as the Israelites are about to be sent into exile, God says to them through the prophets, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. So this is an everlasting covenant love. And so this passage was written for Israel, but also for us, and for us to understand four things about God. And this will be our outline, and we'll go through these again, but it shows us his person, it shows us his power, it shows us his provision, and it shows us his person. So first of all, we're gonna look at God's person. God's person. And God's has said is rooted in his character, and that's in verses one through three. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite Christian authors, um, and, and, and a phrase I use often in my sermon, what comes into a person's mind when they think about God is the single most important thing about that person. He then goes on to add this. The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man is not what he may at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Every time I think about that and, and read that, I'm reminded of, of, of how real that is. Some of you, I've, I've talked to you, and, 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 but I grew up with this idea of God as kind of like a school teacher. He was sitting there at a desk. He was watching my every move and everything that I did. And if I didn't do all the assignments each day that I was supposed to do, much less do everything that he assigned me to do perfectly, I was gonna be in trouble for that. 
And basically, that's just living life not under grace. That's living life under karma. That how, what I do is God is going to respond based on that. But if I did extra good, if I spent extra time in my Bible, if I spent extra time praying and doing all these things, I'm on that chart that God somewhere had somewhere, I was going to get a gold star next to my name because of the things that I did. Now, that is completely antithetical to grace. That is not what grace is all. And as Paul exclaims to the Galatians, this is not how you've learned grace. And as believers, there's nothing we can do to make God love us more, or there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. Verse 1 plainly tells us that God is good. That is who God is. That is who he is. God is good. God cannot not be good. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that happens and everything in this world is good. We know that that's not true. God pronounced his original creation to be very good. But you and I live in a world that is marred and corrupted by sin and the fall. But we still have a God ruling who is good at his very being. Verses two and three explain further. He is the God of God and Lord of Lords. Now, we like to read these phrases in English as being equivalent. But to the Israelites, these were different ways of referring to the character of God. Without getting too deep into it, verse 2, God of gods in Hebrew is Elohi ha-Elohim, which was used to denote Yahweh's supremacy over foreign deities. So God was supreme supreme over foreign deities. In verse 3, Lord of lords is Adonai Baronim, which denoted Yahweh's power over the human sphere and the spiritual realm. In other words, God is the sovereign ruler over everything, whether it be physical rulers, whether it be spiritual powers, whatever it is out there. God is sovereign and ruler over everything. There's nothing that takes him out by surprise, and there's nothing that's out of his control. Now, many of you might be thinking at this point in your life, if God is truly good and God is sovereign, then why did this certain thing happen in my life? Why is there this that's going on in my life right now? And this is something that I've struggled with personally and, and really still do. And when I preached this back in 2019, it was closer to the event. And some of you know why I'm here and, and have heard pieces of my story, but I'll, I'll just go ahead and share this again. But um, my desire growing up was not to be a pastor. My, de- my desire and what I had worked toward was I was a uh, professor of hand surgery uh, at UAMS in Arkansas Children's Hospital up until 2017. And I was fresh in my career, um, gaining notoriety, writing papers, getting paid more money, doing all the stuff that you needed to do. Things were sailing. I had the house, the car, all that type of stuff. Then I started feeling weird in clinics. And at the, especially at the end of the day, I just kind of have these, these spaced out feelings. And I'd had two seizures in my sleep several years prior to this, but because they happened in my sleep, they said that, you know, sometimes people have seizures in their sleep, you know, you might be okay for the rest of your life. And 10% of people are going to have a seizure at some point in their life, so maybe thought I just one of those 10% was going to be fine forever. But when I went to visit the neurologist, I already knew in my mind what he was going to tell me, uh, and the thing that I feared the most was that I couldn't continue working, needed to pull myself out of work now that my epilepsy had creeped up during the day. And that was a very hard day. Jonna was there with me at clinic, and um, she'd driven up for that appointment, 
And since the buildings were connected, I just went back to my office. It was devastated, crying, just honestly flat out angry. Um, it was late at night. I had to call the people that I was supposed to operate on the next day and tell them I wasn't going to operate on them. Uh, called my, my chairman, colleagues, telling them, like, hey, this is going on. I, I don't know what this means. And I was out of work for about six or seven months uh, while medicines were, were being changed and, and things trying to work out. And ultimately, at the end of that time, um, it... Um, just came to the conclusion that going back into surgery uh, wasn't going to be something that I could do. And really, largely my identity was, was in that. I loved what I did. I trained for 14 years to do that. And I loved teaching residents. And then overnight, everything that I loved, the life that I knew, was gone. It was just all taken from me. Now, as I drove home and I was sitting in my office, I knew that God was good in my mind, and I knew that God was sovereign, but it came to the point of the time that I truly believe that God was sovereign and that God was good. Did I truly understand that in my life? And it was really a rough battle between what I had repeated my whole life growing up in church and the journey that God would take me on has still continued to take me on. And, and I will tell you, since I wrote this sermon in 2019, and now being in 2003, I'm understanding a little bit more of it time by time, but there's still days that, I'll be honest with you, I don't get it, I don't understand it, it is frustrating. But at the end of the day, I have to believe that God truly is in control, and God is truly good as he said he is. I'm still sad walking into UAMS. I don't like walking into the building, but I do know that God is good. Now. Is epilepsy and sickness good? No. Is God good? Yes. And I, can we take what is not good and make it good for God's glory? Absolutely. So what do the verse tell us to do? It tells us to give thanks. Give thanks in the good and the bad and the ugly and the messy and the uncertainty because we have a good God. And because of God's goodness and sovereignty, we can give thanks, and we can trust. Moving on to the next section, God's power, verses four through nine. God's power. has said is revealed in his creation. And we often consider God's power in creation. Uh, the Old Testament certainly did. The sun and moon were used to oftentimes to, to bear witness to the greatness of Yahweh. Other nations did the same and had the symbols of, of sun and moon as, as deities that they could claim as their own and try to manipulate them to act on their behalf. Um, some like to take a macro view and see the wonders of things in space or, or look at the Grand Canyon or, or look at Yellowstone or things like that. Um, for some, it, it, it's, it's, it's a miracle of life. For me, it's always been the small things, the things in molecular biology. And all, for me, the, 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 the intricacy of a hand, how things are so connected that, that just draw my awe and wonder. And in, in, in the creation you see the irreducible complexity of all the cellular processes. And that for me has all been a great testament to God's power. Now, there's a word I wanna focus on in verse five. It says, who by understanding made. And that implies the forethought, the planning, the pattern, and the detail. God knew exactly what you and I needed before we even needed it. If that's true in creation, in large physical things, 
then it's also true in our personal lives. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Psalm 139.14, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And marvelous are your works and my soul knows right well. And then in verses 17 and 18, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. So we have a transcendent God who is over all of creation, but we have a God who is close to us, who's present with us and not just a distant God. Jeremiah 23, 23, am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Psalm 8, verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visited him? The beauty of God's revelation and creation is that the God who made it all is right here with us, living within us as believers through the Holy Spirit. So what should we do with this? We should bow down to our creator and yet take comfort in him. We should rejoice in the beauty of God's creation and we should take delight in what he's given us. But most of all, we should worship him both in the large and the small, taking comfort in his nearness. Third, we're gonna look at God's provision. And this is in verse 10 through 23, God's provision. And his said is represented by his salvation. Throughout the Old Testament, God's representation of himself is prefaced with, I'm the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who led you forth from the land of Egypt. And these represent many of the covenants that God made with his chosen people throughout time, a people he purposely chose to love. <clears throat> he initiated that love. He sustained that love, even though they were people that were completely undeserving of that love so many times. In Deuteronomy 7, 6 8, for you are holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And in recital of those 13 verses, it's the story of the exodus from Egypt and God's ability to save them from their distress that they were having. And in spite of their failure to possess the land, in spite of where we are in Judges, of, of turning to other gods over and over and over again, God kept his covenant love with those people. He raised up a people who would deliver a person who would deliver his people when they turned back to him. The Passover was the most holy and celebrated time in Israel's history because it pointed back to the miraculous deeds of God, but yet at the same time pointed forward to their future promise and the inheritance that they have. The Messiah would come and be their king, their conqueror, their deliverer, their savior. And it's highly likely that Christ himself sang this psalm throughout the Passover knowing that his death would be within days and within hours, and that his death would be the event that would result in the ultimate display of God's has said, that we as an undeserving people outside of Israel would be saved by Christ, our Passover lamb, as it says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Now, there's several things to know about has said, is that one, it's an action. It recognizes and acts to relieve an urgent essential need on the part of the recipient. It's not just doing something nice for someone. It refers to a deep and enduring commitment between the parties concerned. And it's always initiated by a more powerful person to a situationally weaker person. And so the significance of reciting these events was not at all lost on those who participated in the corporate singing of this psalm. For them, it pointed to past fulfillment and to future promise. 
It pointed to a new and greater covenant for Israel and then ultimately us based on God's has said. The basis of God's covenant to his people has always been faith. It was faith before the law. It was faith during the law. And it's faith for us after the law um, because we have the fulfillment of the law in Christ. So what does this mean for us today? It calls for us to have faith. This passage calls us to the primacy of faith. Salvation by grace through faith is a completion of the promises of the Old Testament. God has chosen to love us just as he chose to love Israel. He didn't have to choose them, and he didn't have to choose us. But in his has said, he offers redemption through Jesus Christ. And then fourth and finally, God's promise in verses 23 through 26. God's promise has said will be realized forever. There was a future promise for Israel to be realized in Messiah, and I do believe that there still is for them. But for us who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, we are awaiting the final fulfillment of that promise. You see, we live in a stage of the already and the not yet. We're enjoying the blessings of the new covenant right now, but there is still much more and something much greater still to come. A new heaven and a new earth awaits us, a world with no pain, no sickness, no violence, and no death. This is one of the reasons this psalm existed, was to remind those participating in what was to come, just as it can remind us. God saw us, in, as it says there in Psalm 136, our lowest state of sin and saved us. He'll ultimately defeat the final foe of death, and he presently nourishes us spiritually as he reigns from heaven. Now, a great prophet, uh, promise was made by the prophet Jeremiah, and there's a lot of symmetry to Psalm 136. And I'll read this before we have some final concluding thoughts. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 35. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, while I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like a covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. My covenant they broke. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember them sin no more. Now, depending on your point of view, we are fortunately or unfortunately headed for another election cycle. And it's a time for candidates to promise a bunch of stuff that they'll never be able to do, that they never intend to keep, but they're gonna say because it's the right thing to do in the polls uh, and... Um, Basically, they're people that are always going to let you down, no matter which of any side you go for. But there is one who has never failed to keep a promise. Now, there may be times where you feel like God has forgotten you, but rest assured that he hasn't. It is God that provides and will provide, and he will fulfill every promise that he has made. Nothing compares to the glory that awaits us. So in closing, I just want to, conclude with these three thoughts. God reiterates his steadfast love, has said, through repetition and backs it up on the basis of his person, his power, and his provision, and promises something far greater for us. So what would we do with all that? We hope. We look forward to the day when all will be made right. We hold on to God's has said, his steadfast love. God's has said for Israel did not fail, has not failed and will not fail because it's based in God's character and the person of God himself. And finally, 
on a personal note, this is a beautiful word for me and really is the most beautiful word that I can think of when I think about my life. When times are rough, when times are good, when you know what to do and when you don't know what to do and you find yourself in those situations, recite God's deeds in your life. Remember his has said and claim God's steadfast love as your own. The same has said so powerfully demonstrated to Israel through, through the exodus and the things that are represented there can be demonstrated to you either magnificently or often very quietly in your own life. But it's always so powerful when God's has said is demonstrated to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that speaks so clearly of your love to us. We thank you for all the promises that have been fulfilled, those that are awaiting fulfillment and everything that has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ and his salvation for us. We thank you that you love us in spite of being an unworthy and an unlovely people. And Father, I pray that we would rest in your grace and your love as we continue in worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.